Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work while he, uh, he's he been overseas and he's getting home, which I'm very glad about getting back to his family. He's just taken a couple months to complete that transition and spend some time with them. And then we will be resuming the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm going to be picking up where I left off last time Jeff was off and going back through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I'm going to be doing one episode a week covering one or two chapters. When last we left off, I just finished up book three out of six in The Lord of the Rings. That's about halfway through The Two Towers. If you want to check those previous episodes out, get caught up before this one, go ahead on over to patreon.com slash ASOIAF and sign up. My Lord of the Rings episodes covering books one, two, and three are available for all $5 and above patrons under the LOTR tag. So this week we're going to be covering the first chapter of book four, The Taming of Smeagol. So, when we left off with Frodo and Sam, they had broken off from the rest of the Fellowship, planning to complete the mission on their own. In the meantime, we've read book three, all about the rest of the Fellowship dealing with Gandalf coming back from the dead, fighting in the war against Saruman, bearing witness to the fury of the Ents. A lot has happened. But now, as we rewind the clock, we're back with Frodo and Sam, who are in a fix, as Sam says in the opening words of the chapter. They're pretty much right where we left them. The deflation is palpable, and I think it's deliberate. The sudden, exciting transformations like Gandalf showing up at Helm's Deep or the Ents marching on Isengard are replaced by an exhausting, dispiriting grind where you're just fighting for every foot of territory. That's the road Frodo walks now. That's the road of the hero, the martyr, the sacrifice made so the rest of Middle-earth could be free of the shadow of the past. He and Sam are trapped in the Emin Muil, a fiendish knot of hills that seems to have been designed by an angry god to screw the hobbits over. They wander in circles, and even when they manage to push their way east, they find impassable slopes cutting them off from the marshes below. It's hard to even keep track of time. They're stuck in a repetitive loop. It reminds me of the old forest on the borders of the Shire, where the malevolent intelligence in the willow tree bent the forest itself around the hobbits to lure them to their doom. There's no sign of that in the Emin Muil. These hills aren't alive, to borrow from the sound of music, and Sauron doesn't know they're coming. Not yet. But it still feels like the land is working against Frodo and Sam. Like this isn't a natural space so much as an abstract one, like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, or the mysterious zone in Stalker. It's the classical motif of the labyrinth, but as is often the case in Lord of the Rings, there's a Christian subtext as well. We're in an empty land with sterile thunder, where the devil waits and watches. It's a crucible drained of all life and color, daring them to surrender to despair. And the bitter irony is that this place is a paradise compared to where they're trying to get to. Mordor, the worst place in the world. They can see it at a distance, in one of Tolkien's thrilling and chilling landscape descriptions, where a high place allows for a sudden expansion of scope. The eastern wind blows as night claims all green and growing things. The mountains hang like motionless smoke, Tolkien writes, a poetic phrase to capture how Sauron is both a looming threat and a phantom of vapor. Just beyond the mountains, a flash of red. That's him, or his mountain, the end of it all. Frodo put it all on the line to get there. It was his doom, and at the end of book two, he decided he was ready for it. And now it seems like the road won't even let him sacrifice himself. He can't even get it over with quickly. So the fear grows. The delay is rubbing him raw, 
worse than the danger itself. He has to watch the shadow overtake the river Anduin, knowing he foreswore his chance to go that way down to Gondor. Throughout the chapter, he puts himself at risk to escape the hills and get on with the quest at any cost. Seems like he's beginning to regret the choices that seemed so correct at the end of book two. But it's too late to go back now. He's committed, for better or worse. He's a martyr wandering the desert, losing all faith and hope, admitting he doesn't know what to do next. His renewal will come in the most unlikely form imaginable. Gollum, formerly known as Smeagol. The hobbits feel his eyes on them, just like Frodo feels Sauron's eyes searching for the ring. They're being observed from both directions. The enemy ahead, and behind them, what the enemy would turn them into. Frodo feels the walls closing in. He doesn't understand how Gollum is tracking them. There are no footprints to follow, and there's nothing much in the way of ascent. The truth seems to be that Gollum is tracking the ring itself, every bit as much as Sauron. As the hobbits walk, it seems like they can hear faint sounds behind them, just as when Gollum tracked them through Moria. Back when I was covering those chapters, I said Moria stood in for Mordor, and so it was appropriate that Gollum would find the Fellowship there. He belongs to the Shadow, body and soul, thanks to the ring's corrupting effects. Same dynamic is at play here. As Tolkien writes, the sound of the wind over the stones reminds the hobbits of breath hissing through sharp teeth. It's as though Gollum is these hills, and they are him. This is what he looks like inside, a bleak maze with no exit, no joy, no reason to live except a desperate scrabble for the precious. A handful of trees manage to survive here, but they're outnumbered by the stumps, what's left over when life has gone. Tolkien describes the hills as looking like a great wall that has been cracked, broken, and shifted. As Maester Lewin tells Bran in Song of Ice and Fire, the mountains only look immortal to us. They can change, they can die. They're always in the middle of breaking down. The Lord of the Rings is all about the passage of time. And while the Emin Muil was never as lovely as Moria or Lothlorien at their respective heights, it used to be happier than it is now. And the same goes for Gollum. This is what the hobbits must confront, more than Sauron himself, who is always several degrees removed from being an immediate threat. Before Gollum shows up, though, we get a tense little set piece where Frodo and Sam have to climb down a ravine. This is the kind of thing that makes Lord of the Rings a boring slog for some readers. We've established the setting, we know Gollum's around, so why not just jump into his relationship with the hobbits? Well, because Gollum's presence is going to change everything. And Tolkien first puts Frodo and Sam, specifically, through a gauntlet that reminds us of their relationship and how they relate to the larger issues and ideas at play. Sam is terrified of climbing down. But once Frodo decides to do it, Sam's courage and loyalty win out, and he immediately sticks his ass out over the edge and starts climbing. As Tolkien writes, this is equally brave and dumb. Sam is working so hard to prove himself that he almost got himself killed. Frodo takes the more sensible approach of, you know, looking first, planning a route down, but he's also driven by an internal need, as much as external logistics. In his case, he's desperate to escape the eye, but he's only descending deeper into darkness, and suddenly a storm comes up from the east. It doesn't feel like a natural occurrence. There's no rain to rekindle life in these dead hills. Again, it's sterile thunder, the kind you see in Eliot's The Wasteland, an explosion of this kind of despair of the martyr figure. Here is no water, but only rock. Rock and no water and the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand, if there were only water amongst the rock. Deep mountain mouth of carious teeth that cannot spit. 
Here one can neither stand, nor lie, nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. Along with the smiting thunder and lightning comes a voice, a terrifying shriek across the sky like a bomb being dropped. The hobbits have heard it before, from the black riders chasing them across the Shire. But it's far worse here. They're on the enemy's home turf, and so the enemy doesn't have to disguise its servants as a bipedal hominid dressed in black. This is purely elemental, a storm of terror that causes Frodo to lose his grip and plunge into literal and metaphorical darkness. All of a sudden, he's struck blind, a common occurrence for spiritual figures like him. It evokes everything from Odin plucking out one of his eyes to Saul being struck blind by a light from heaven. Sam can still see. This isn't really about the literal environment. This is a darkness unique to Frodo, the Ringbearer. Not for nothing does Tolkien stop to describe the sound of the Nazgul Shriek being like blades stabbing into the hobbits. That's meant to remind us of the wound Frodo took from one of them on Weathertop. No matter what Sam does, he can't share that burden with Frodo. Only then does the rain finally come. And with it, some hope. Sam suddenly remembers the rope the elves gave him in Lothlorien. There's a funny bit where Sam is so relieved that he just talks to himself about it for a while, until Frodo, both amused and annoyed, tells him to use the goddamn rope already instead of just talking about it. The rope restores Frodo's vision. He can just barely see it, gray and glimmering, and he uses it to climb out. Now that's a perfect microcosm of his story as a whole. Frodo is plunged into the darkness, but there's a little light left to hold on to. A shard of elvish wisdom preserved against the ravages of time and a literal connection between him and Sam, embodying the relationship that will get them both through the worst of times. The shadow moves on, the stars come out, and Frodo catches his breath for the journey ahead. There's another moment of despair when the hobbits come down and Sam realizes he has to leave the rope behind, like an invitation for Gollum to follow them. But when he gives it a tug, the rope falls down the slope to join them. Frodo logically assumes the knot must have fallen apart, but Sam knows better. The rope came when he called. It's alive, like the elves who made it. The rope is intertwined with the natural world. It's just a little bit of magic, a touch of divine grace to give them hope in a hopeless place. Frodo is often the more rational and logical of these two, hence him stopping Sam from climbing without looking. Sam, though, understands some things on a deeper level, more in tune with nature and with other species. Sam stows the rope lovingly, like it's a companion, a replacement for his pony Bill. It's not enough to stop Gollum, but it's enough to give them the strength to deal with him. Gollum is, of course, a terrifically written character, one of the best in the story. He's both pathetic and dangerous, activating both sympathy and repulsion in the reader. Tolkien sets the mood of his approach perfectly. An eerie moonlit night, the shadows stretching out to claim our heroes. Gollum comes crawling down the cliff face with no need of rope. Tolkien repeatedly compares him to a spider, foreshadowing of how book four ends in the lair of Shelob the Spider, an even more confined mountain space than this one, as the hobbits are trapped by Gollum's lust for the ring. Gollum is written to raise your hackles, to make you think of things that scuttle and crawl away from the light, something you might instinctively kill out of disgust, as Frodo said Bilbo should have done to Gollum back in the day. And now here he is hunting the hobbits. But even though the spiders in Mirkwood could talk and reason through their problems, we were never made to understand them as individuals, which is fitting for a kid's book like The Hobbit, in which the spiders serve no purpose but to make the audience shiver with fear. Here in Lord of the Rings, Gollum is such a singular, distinct individual that it's impossible to dismiss him as an inhuman monster. He's just such a recognizable personality, petty, obsessive, and sly. 
He's totally different from a terse professional like Aragorn, where you feel like every word Aragorn says is is carefully chosen and he's thought it through. Gollum is just always running. He's constantly monologuing in a language all his own. Reflecting maybe more than any other single character, Tolkien's lifelong interest in language. The way Gollum talks is how you come to understand him, even more than what it is he's saying. The fragmentary, circular nature of it, bouncing between languages, stumbling from threats to piteous wails to growling noises. It's, it's just so unique and memorable. Gollum's dialect is drawn in part from his community of proto-hobbits, in part from the orcs and other creatures he encountered in the Misty Mountains and Mordor, but it's above all a product of his intense isolation. No one talks like this because he had no one to talk to in the darkness. There's no one to talk to there but yourself. So Gollum holds endless conversations with himself, gnawing on his obsession like a dog with a bone. I've said before in these episodes that while we never really see Sauron, the titular Lord of the Rings, in Lord of the Rings, we meet a series of surrogates for him that show him aspects of, that show us aspects of the Dark Lord. Saruman, the Balrog, the Ring itself. Gollum is another one of these demonstrating the weakness hiding inside the Dark Lord's strength. Sauron is all about power over others. Gollum shows us a version of Sauron that lacks all power, even over himself, driven only by the ring. Frodo warns Sam that Gollum is more dangerous than he looks, but Gollum doesn't inspire fear in Sam so much as anger and disgust. And that's only made worse by the fight when Gollum shows up. Sam grabs hold of Gollum, but almost gets strangled by him. Gollum is like a snake as well as a spider, a burnt-out figure of temptation here in this desolate garden. It's Frodo who saves the day, looming over Gollum, forcing him to stare up at the sky and at Sting at his throat. As Frodo says, Gollum has seen that sword before. The circle of story is coming round again, and Tolkien clearly wants us to think about this scene in relation to the confrontation between Gollum and Bilbo in The Hobbit. Gollum flips the script in a moment, collapsing, as Tolkien puts it, into obsequious self-pity, bemoaning the hobbits for doing this to him, flattering them as nice hobbits, while implying that they won't be if they abandon him here, promising to be nice to them in return. Sam sees through this performance, and still regards Gollum as nothing but a threat, and an asshole. Frodo has a different perspective. It's not so much that he's fooled by Gollum's ass-kissing routine, it's that he's beginning to understand the desperation, alienation, and raw pain motivating that performance. All of a sudden, Frodo hears himself, a voice out of the past, the person he used to be. He was talking to Gandalf about Gollum and Bilbo, and how Bilbo refrained from killing Gollum, out of pity and mercy. Gollum may deserve death, but that's not for us to say, any more than it is for us to say to bring back those who died undeservedly. Frodo didn't understand then. He does now, and he pities Gollum. So all these moments are linked. Bilbo and Gollum, Frodo and Gandalf, Frodo and Gollum. Frodo sees himself in Gollum now, and he sees Bilbo too, the monster his uncle became for a heartbeat at Rivendell when he saw the ring again after years without it. This is the end result of that process, someone with no power over the ring, subservient to its will. Frodo isn't quite there yet, but he feels it tugging at him, like the eye watching from just over the horizon. So Frodo does what Bilbo did. He shows mercy for Gollum. This is one of the most significant decisions in his story, linking his arc to Bilbo's and making the whole ending in Mount Doom possible. In the end, Frodo will fully understand what Gandalf meant, and how his pity and Bilbo's made the ring's destruction possible, just not in a way either Frodo or Bilbo would ever have imagined. Frodo declares that for all of Gollum's wickedness and mischief, 
he must come with them. A replacement and inversion of the fellowship they left behind. That was a bond of trust, and they can't trust Gollum. That's clear even before he runs off. As he asks where it is they're going, he can't keep the cold cunning from creeping back into his eyes. Gollum never seems to stay still, figuratively as well as literally. His persona, his attitude, it's always changing. Because the ring is a moving target, Gollum will say and do whatever it takes for a chance to get it back. Frodo, though, pins him down like a butterfly under glass with his gaze and his words, using the name Smeagol to trap his opponent in place. Smeagol, that's your name. That's who you were and are. And it is in the name of that hobbit self that I appeal to you now like Frodo appeals to Sam and his own better angels whenever his will wavers. Names have power, as we see when Frodo speaks the name of Mordor aloud and Gollum covers his ears. So Smeagol and Mordor go hand in hand, revealing the truth that Gollum can't bear to recognize. He ruined his old life as Smeagol for the ring, but it never belonged to him. It belonged to Mordor and its Dark Lord. Frodo reminds us that Gollum has been to Mordor, that's the inciting event of the story from the Hobbit's perspective that he gave away Shire and Baggins to Sauron, the descent of their ancestor into the darkness, like Isildur was for men. And it was a torment for Gollum. You'd think he would have, you know, pretty high standards for misery, given what his life in the Misty Mountains was like, but Mordor was so much worse. He hasn't gotten over it. Gollum's reaction to the word causes him to break down in a way that, unlike his bootlicking, does not seem like a performance. Suddenly he's lost in his horrible memories, and his words become a stream of consciousness recall of his life since losing the ring. He's tired, he's in pain, and he can't get the precious back. There are eyes on him all the time, elves' eyes and men's eyes as well as that of Sauron, everyone who hates him, watching, glaring, judging, like a sun that never sets. Gollum shakes his fist at the east, as one might at the rising sun, with just as much effect. It's so moving because Gollum can't defy the ring, and thus Sauron for long. As Frodo says, Gollum is being drawn back toward Mordor, even more than they are. But there's a little bit of Smeagol still in there, mourning the rivers and trees of his youth, and he's the one who shakes his fist at the east, refusing to serve the darkness. Frodo tells him the truth. Sauron doesn't give a damn if you defy him, he'll just steamroll you to demonstrate that he can. I love how Tolkien writes characters talking about Sauron. It's always just he. This nameless, invisible presence that Frodo and Gollum both know intimately on a level they can't quite explain because he's in their heads. It's a fascinating contrast with Pippin at the end of book three, the chapter right before this one. Sauron was an unexpected visitor in his head, one time only. Frodo and Gollum live with Sauron's presence in their thoughts and feelings. A wheel of fire that by the end, Frodo can see with his waking eyes. It's unbearable. It drains you like a vampire. Frodo knows where this road is leading him. He's looking at it. So when he offers to help Gollum find Smeagol again, bring some life to the ruins of the Eminuiel all around them, he's also talking about helping himself, giving himself hope that he's not doomed to become like Gollum. What if we could make a bargain? What if we could be allies, even friends? So the hobbits decide to test him. It all happens wordlessly. Tolkien writes that they know without saying they have to stay still, and by the same token, Frodo and Sam communicate the plan with a glance, nothing more. They know each other so well, and as we keep seeing, the hobbits may be ignorant of the wider world compared to Gandalf and Aragorn, but that doesn't make them unintelligent. They can carry out a plan like this. 
Frodo and Sam pretend to fall asleep to see if Gollum will run for it, and naturally he does. They can't trust him. Tolkien keeps hammering that home. He's not trying to lull us into a false sense of security with Gollum before he betrays them out of nowhere. He wants us to consider how you can cooperate with someone you know you can't trust. The hobbits decide to tie Gollum up. Sam's rope comes in handy again for the opposite purpose, this time to prevent motion instead of assisting in it. Gollum immediately begins howling and screaming. The hobbit's first reaction, naturally, is that he's faking it to trick them into letting him run away again. Frodo's next thought is that maybe the rope is too tight. But as he says, Sam was gentler than his words when he tied Gollum up. For all that Sam doesn't understand Gollum the way Frodo does, he doesn't actively wish pain on the little bastard. The pain comes from the rope itself. It's of elvish make, and Gollum can't bear it, the same way he can't eat elvish food, nor bear the light of the sun and moon. He is a total outcast. The world of the free peoples is anathema to him, because he turned his back on all of it to embrace the darkness. Again, he's Sauron made miniature, all the strength stripped away to reveal the alienation at the heart of power. Compare that to how the light of the rope saved Frodo, healed the blindness that he suffered in the darkness brought on by the presence of the Dark Lord and his minions. How do we cross that gap? If it's cruel to imprison Gollum, to inflict the pain of his isolation upon him, how do we reintegrate him into the world at large? Well, one of the ways we achieve trust is through values, things we believe in. Remember Legolas and Gimli in Book 3? They bonded over the things they love, even though those are different things. The trees of Fangorn Forest for Legolas and the stones of Helm's Deep for Gimli. But the love was in common and they both recognized that. The only thing Gollum loves, though, is the ring, his precious, his absolute need for it, his inability to find meaning in anything else, his addiction, eating him up from the inside out. Only the precious is powerful enough to get Gollum to refer to himself as Smeagol, a strange light coming into his eyes as he says it. The conflict within him is raging now, but the one thing his two sides in co have in common is a lust for the ring. It's not just that Gollum can't be trusted, Frodo points out. The ring can't be trusted either. If Gollum ties himself even further to it, he'll regret it. And once again, Frodo is clearly talking about himself as much as Gollum. Frodo himself made a promise regarding the ring, to destroy it. And as we'll see, those words will be twisted around as well. Gollum doesn't know about that mission yet, of course. He swears to do everything he can to keep the ring out of Sauron's clutches, something everyone can agree on. He swears to Frodo as the new master of the precious, the new lord of the rings. The ring is a transformative element. We know it can ruin people. What Gollum is suggesting here is that it can also redeem him. It can make him whole. He swears on his precious that he will be very, very good. And I think this is Tolkien poking fun at the superficial nature of such pledges. It's not enough to just declare that you will be very, very good. That's the kind of simplistic idea that hobbits might have believed in back in easier times. Being good is constant, painful work, and you can always backslide. Gollum's words pale before the power of the ring. As Frodo says, Gollum knows it will drive him mad, and he does not care. Frodo won't let Gollum even see the precious. And the Hobbit seems to change in this moment. Tolkien takes us inside Sam's POV to show us the change. Frodo suddenly looks like the wise, powerful companions they left behind. He's a tall, stern shadow, like Aragorn. He's hiding his brightness in a gray cloud, as Gandalf did, as Gandalf, as Gandalf did, Gandalf the Grey, before his death and rebirth. Frodo is gaining their perspective. Compared to that, Gollum looks like a whining dog to Sam. Yet, they're connected. Akin, not alien, as Tolkien writes. 
They have something in common that Sam doesn't, something that allows them to read each other's minds. The ring has gathered them, and in the darkness, binds them. This is the big moment, the deal made between ring bearers past and present, enemies forced to try and be friends, to see something in one another. It leads to an immediate change in Gollum, like he's back to being Smeagol. But can it be trusted? Any more than Gandalf acting like he's just a regular guy, one of the gang? Here Tolkien does that trick he loves where he jumps through time, telling us that the change in Gollum lasted for some time, so that also tells us it wasn't permanent. Now he's pitiful, anxious to please, like a whipped cur. Sam likes him even less. The threat remains, and this doesn't feel genuine. Gollum, or whatever we're supposed to call you, Sam says, his identity is fluid and could snap back at any moment. We're waiting for it. How's it going to go wrong? When? Only darkness and black silence awaits them, Tolkien writes at the end of the chapter. Silence is a crucial term here, I think, presenting this as a land devoid of the holy word. Gollum is always talking, not only to himself, but to the ring. The ring never answers. It's a one-way relationship, which sadly doesn't stop Gollum from pursuing it. He's leading the hobbits into the domain of death, which will be made very literal next week when we arrive at the Dead Marshes. So, as in the last time I was covering Lord of the Rings chapters, I'm going to talk at the end of each episode about the movie adaptations from Peter and Jackson and company that came out about 20 years ago and how they handled each stretch of the material. The movie adaptation of The Two Towers begins with Frodo dreaming of Gandalf's fall in Moria. It's mostly there to keep Gandalf fresh in the audience's mind for his return, and to provide a badass opening for this middle chapter of the story, which, as George Lucas said about The Empire Strikes Back, has no true beginning nor end. But this is also there to tie into Frodo's disillusionment, his fear about his own fate. Will he follow the fire down into the dark, like Gandalf did? Like Gollum did? In the extended edition, we get a bit with Sam's rope. It's not as tense or terrifying as the novel, Frodo doesn't get struck blind, so you miss out on that kind of prophetic spiritual subtext that fits this lifeless labyrinth so well. But the overall point still comes through. You get Sam's little box of seasoning as a memory of home, a dream, like Frodo's dream of Gandalf. The fact, that it's out of, the fact that it's so out of place here is what makes it poignant, like the rope itself, coming when Sam calls. The M and Mu wheel are represented perfectly on screen, all bleak jagged rocks and mysterious fog, a perfect place to get lost. They filmed in the Wakapapa area, near Mount Ruapehu, near where they filmed scenes like Isildur cutting off Sauron's finger, and the armies of Minas Morgul marching on Gondor. It's appropriate that this is filmed in the same area as settings closer to Mordor itself, because, as Sam says like in the books, Mordor is where they're trying to get, despite its many evils, and they can't even get there. Frodo's mind takes us there, though. The sudden zooms and quick edits reflecting the horror of touching Sauron's mind in turn, the revelation of the eye atop the Dark Tower. The movie cuts right from Sauron's blazing red eye to Frodo's blue eyes, suggesting that one is becoming the other. The ring is pulling Frodo into the darkness. It's getting heavier, he says, a burden. This stands in for Sauron's stormy presence in the books that strikes Frodo blind, and the filmmakers are adept at finding different ways to communicate the same ideas and feelings. All the hobbits have to hang on to is each other. And the Lemba spread, of course. Sam is tired of eating the same thing every day, hence him holding on to his seasonings at all costs. But the concerning Hobbit's theme appears on the soundtrack as they eat, showing us without telling us that this is a taste of home. As Sam says, this elvish food may be foreign, but it's not bad. There are some things worth loving outside the borders of home, precisely because they give you that homey feeling. But as Sam also says, the storm, the storm literally dampens his spirits. 
It brings Gollum, and Gollum brings that motif from Shadow of the Past and Journey in the Dark on the score, which we also heard when Gandalf first told Frodo about Gollum's story, and again when Gollum appeared in Moria. It replaces concerning hobbits to indicate that Gollum was once like them, but no more. His song has changed. As in the books, the hobbits are going in circles, caught in a nasty fix that, ironically, only Gollum can save them from. Everyone has already prayed to the movie's take on Gollum, both in terms of the effects and Andy Serkis' performance. It could have gone so wrong. It could have been a cringy, visually distracting embarrassment like Jar Jar Binks. Instead, it's one of the enduring highlights of these movies, a huge part of their presence in pop culture, subject of countless references, parodies, and weak imitations, including, of course, my own. It's the same mix of threatening and pathetic as in the books, only ramped up in terms of tone. So Gollum makes you flinch, and then he makes you giggle, a constant game of tension and release that puts you in the position of the hobbits, always watching him for the next move. Gollum looks like an emaciated old man, but also like a newborn baby. He's like a spider, both in that he might poison you, but also it feels like you could just step on him. Part of what makes the effects work so well is that Gollum is so wrinkled and disheveled, preventing the uncanny smoothness you sometimes get with computer-generated characters like him. And that voice. Oh, that voice. Like I said, Gollum's dialogue is what makes him such a distinct and memorable character in the books, and Circus does an unimaginably good job. He shifts between a menacing growl and a high-pitched whine, and a whisper that seems to contain both. As he crawls down toward the hobbits with the moon behind him, he's whispering and shouting at the same time, all his bitterness coming out as he seethes their thieves. Yet at the same time, he doesn't seem to realize he's speaking aloud at all. When the hobbits take him down, there's that great POV shot of his, with Frodo looming above, a sting slicing down the frame, to emphasize how small Gollum feels, and the shock of seeing Sting again. It rhymes with the climactic shot at the end of the movie, when it's Sam that Frodo was threatening, indicating that the mirror has flipped and Frodo has become like Gollum. After all, when Gollum's eyes go from narrow slits to wide open and vulnerable, they look like Frodo's eyes. Back to that link between Frodo's eyes and Sauron's eye. All these characters are poised along a spectrum, with the potential for transformation into each other always present. When Gollum almost gets his fingers on the ring, his eyes tremble, his cheeks puff out, you feel what it's like to be him, to be so close, even as you feel Frodo's fear and anger and disgust. It's incredibly gripping stuff, literally. Once they capture Gollum, he starts whining, that great, irritating Gollum screech like nails on a chalkboard, filling the hills and acting as a sound bridge to the next scene. The tone is so perfect, like the books, showing you how annoying Gollum is to be around, but also the pain behind that aggravation. There's that great memeable bit where he just leans back and moans as loud as he possibly can. Again, he's like a baby or a misbehaving pet, someone you just can't reason with but have to tolerate. And the movie really emphasizes Sam's fury and response, like he tugs really hard on the leash when they're bringing Gollum around on the rope. And I think that's a smart move, even though it is different from the books. It highlights the contrast with Frodo's empathetic response. And it shows us how being a good guy like Sam can actually be a problem in context if he's unable to understand how anyone could be anything else. His only instinct is to try to force Gollum to behave, which Frodo understands is just never gonna work. Gollum is framed in the movies even more than the books like a vampire. He's biting Sam on the neck. When he does that big moan, his fingers are outstretched like claws. Of course, he hates the sun. But as scary as vampires are, they're driven by thirst as much as malice, an addiction to blood, like Gollum's addiction to the ring. 
Sam unknowingly repeats Frodo's line from earlier in the story from the previous movie. Gollum deserves to die. They should abandon him so his noises don't bring orcs down on all of them. Frodo demonstrates he's learned better with a simple act of mercy. And Elijah Wood underplays this in perfect contrast to Circus's antics. Frodo increasingly seems like he's hypnotized in the movies or moving underwater, following the dictates of destiny, with short, sharp moments that drag him back to present awareness. And so they make the bargain, with Gollum seemingly unable to believe it as the rope is lifted from around his neck like he's being freed from the noose, shock arising in his eyes as dread settles in Sam's. After all, this is their only way forward, and there's no turning back now. So that's going to wrap us up for this week on The Taming of Smeagol, the first chapter of Book 4 in The Lord of the Rings. Next week, we're going to be plunging ahead into the Dead Marshes as Gollum leads Frodo and Sam ever closer to Mordor. And then from that, we'll proceed out into the rest of Book 4 with their failed attempt to make it through the Black Gate, going down to the River Anduin era, meeting Faramir, and then climbing up into the Dark Mountains ahead to deal with Shelob the Spider. Excellent stuff. I can't wait to get into more of it. And I hope you uh, enjoy this episode and the next Lord of the Rings episodes to come. If you want to check out the previous ones, the ones where I was covering book one, two, and three, those are available over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf for all our $5 and above patrons. So feel free to check that out. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you next week.